Good afternoon, everybody. We're going to start, and this panel is all about money. How do you make money in the music business? How do you raise money in the music business, if you can? And really talking about business models and the future of the music industry. It, to me, it's one of the most disappointing business-oriented industries on the planet. But I think there is hope in the future. So we've got a great panel. They're all friends. I'm going to have everybody introduce themselves first and foremost. And then we can talk about some questions that I have for the panel. And then we're going to do an interactive discussion. So you guys get ready to raise your hand, speak out, and shout out questions. So I'll start with uh, Tim and my far left. Hey, guys. I'm Tim Chang, a managing director with Mayfield Fund. We are early-stage tech-focused venture capital firm based here in Silicon Valley. Hey, guys. Katerina Markov. I'm head of innovation at a company called Atom Factory. We manage a number of artists. Some of you might know Lady Gaga, John Legend, and a number of others. We also have an angel fund. We're invested in about 50 companies, everything from Spotify to Uber to Fab to Dropbox. And we've incubated a few companies, such as Backplane and a new beverage company called Popwater. Hi, I'm Larry Marcus from Walden Venture Capital. We're based out of San Francisco and Woodside, and uh, we do Sprout Stage Investing, which is post-product or technology. My name is Haney Nada. I'm a partner at GGV Capital. We are a tech-focused fund. Uh, we've actually done made investments in a number of companies in the music sector. Probably one of the very few VCs that actually has made money. Uh, we have investors in Pandora, SoundCloud, Bandpage. And our most successful investment, very few have ever heard, is a company called YY, which is uh, listed on the NASDAQ. Uh, that's half their business is a music business. And that's been very, very successful for us. So with that, we're going to start our panel. And the first discussion, this is two threads to this panel. One is about venture capital investing in the music space. So how many people here have a startup that they want to fund with venture capital in the music space? Raise your hand. How many of you are artists trying to figure out how to make money in the music segment? Or managers, artists, managers, whatever, that are trying to make money in the music sector? Oh, this is... How many of you have given up? And how many are just music gadflies that are just here just to listen to the panel and have free cocktails afterwards? There you go. All right, so let's start with this. Just about every VC I know is a music zealot. They love music. They love going to shows. They love listening to bands. But very few have invested in music. And so I'll start off with Tim because I know he's probably the most professional of the musicians up here. And he is intensely interested in music, but hasn't made any investments in the music segment. So I'll start with him and ask him why. Sure. Music's one of those funny areas because we're all deeply passionate about it. We play it, or we've wanted to play it. We like the people in it. It's a part of our aspirational identity. But the business models don't always align with that interest. And historically, there's been about three models to try to do music plays. The first is sell content whether it's your own IP or peddling other people's content. Challenges with that is that the margins are often low if you're selling other people's stuff. And then, you know, when it comes time for renewal of IP contracts, somebody's got you by the short hairs and things change there. The second model is amass a community and try to uh, monetize on advertising, which 
you know, if you reach Facebook scale, that could work, but it's kind of tough to get to that sometimes. And the third is sell tools or services to those who create or aspire to create music. Um, but that's not always been the biggest market as well. And let's face it, artists aren't well, always the richest people to spend money on things. So um, those have been the, the challenges in terms of finding businesses that can scale these hundreds of millions of revenue profitably. I think we will explore in this discussion other potential business models, which I've been you know, trying to explore. Katerina, you guys are obviously heavily in the music business, understand this business probably from a management company perspective better than anyone I've seen. If I take a look at your investments that you guys have made in, in your little seed fund or side fund, very few of them have been music companies. Can you talk a little bit about why it's a good business for you guys to be in, but not a very good business for you guys to invest? Yeah, I mean, coming from the management side, we, we understand where the revenues come from, from the artist's perspective. And so there's, like Tim mentioned, there's a very small bucket coming out of the you know, licensing content and, and the, the likes of a Spotify and... and um, some of the streaming services. So we have to be very smart about how we invest in, in those companies. And I think from from my perspective is we as a company have really broad relationships that we've built in the entertainment business that can be used across multiple verticals, not just the music industry. So we've invested in, in, in very various industries beyond music for that reason. Larry, do you have any differing, differing thoughts? So... Part of the reason I love investing in the music space is everybody else hates it. And <laughs> I think that creates a lot of interesting opportunities. One of the things that I've avoided is having to do direct licensing deals with the content holders. Pandora is doing statutory licensing. And so when we decided to go into the radio space, that wasn't requiring direct deals to do. So I think as a startup... Doing the direct deals just gives you terrible margins and a real lack of visibility over how your business is going to play out. But the music space, as Tim is saying, is something everybody is passionate about. And there is a huge amount of time that's spent, and that time really does turn into money. And there has been a generational shift away from thinking about paying for music, but there is more and more desire to really connect with artists and to pay for different kinds of experiences. And I think people, you know, believe in paying artists, but they haven't really been served up a great way to do it in a while. I think when you're older, like when I was a kid, I spent all my allowance buying music. And I've given my daughter open access to iTunes, and she's actually spending a lot of money on music, as it turns out, as well. So it's not that but her friends are mostly pirating music. So, I mean, there's a habit issue, and I don't think that we're necessarily going to solve that, and I don't want to attempt to solve that. But there's so much around the entire ecosystem, and there's so much passion across a broad spectrum. I think there's a lot of exciting opportunities. So, you know, like SoundHound, that's really a search company. It happens to have a great music search app, but it's really a core search company and a media company. Um, you know, Bandpage, that company is, you know, helping to empower bands in new ways, but it's not attempting to make money from the selling of music. It's, it's moving, helping to connect the artists and the fans and do some other things. So I see a lot of unsolved issues and a lot of energy. It's just 
very you know narrow path with pretty steep uh, cliffs with lava in them on the side. So I promised Larry er- earlier today that I wouldn't get on my soapbox, and uh, some of you who know me know what my soapbox is. But one of the, one of the things that we see oftentimes is that musicians are horrible business people in terms of understanding business models, how to navigate business models. They are probably at the bottom of the food chain. And if you really took a look at the business-minded, savvy people in the music business, they're typically around management and labels. And if you take a look at how they get paid, how they get paid is by helping monetize recorded music, which is probably the least valuable piece of the entire music experience. And so until the business people, in my mind, until the business people figure out ways to monetize the experience of music and not just the product of music, I think this industry will remain small and hard to fund and hard to make money at. When you're spending 90% of the conversation talking about licensing royalties, blah, 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 with your lawyers, it's really hard to make a good business out of it. So that's why I think it's been as difficult as it has. And the other thing, too, none of us here have a charter where, hey, you have to do music. You know, you're not the music VC. But we, we look across a full spectrum you know, of different businesses, consumer and enterprise. So I think one of the big challenges for the music industry and for the content holders is to actually create a very friendly ecosystem for startups to really innovate and have real visibility on how they can be partners and sell because otherwise there's not going to be that innovation coming from startups because they're not going to get the venture capital funding because we're going to be funding, you know, different kinds of mobile or social or wearable or whatever the, the buzzword is. So these companies have to be on par in terms of their total opportunity. Tim, you're thinking over there. Yeah, um, so here's, I agree with everything that's been said. The bright lights of hope, maybe, uh, I've been kind of thinking about, and I'll bounce this off you guys. There's a couple, and I take my inspirations from YY, Las Vegas, and particularly the EDM scene. And third, companies like Kickstarter, I should say platforms like Kickstarter. And I think the gist of it is that historically music is actually about an aspirational feeling or story. And you're not really selling content. Content's just a format of something. It's actually become the least valuable. Why is EDM, you know, a multi-billion dollar industry? You're not selling the music. You're selling the experience and the stories you could tell that you were, you know, at table service at Avicii at XS or at the new Hakkasan opening with Calvin Harris and we got Magnum sparklers. And I want to party with you, Tim. Well, <laughs> the funny thing is that is all sold, you know. Those tables, the bottle service and all that is the ultimate whale good uh, to use gaming parlance. And you're selling experiences and stories to people. So music's really about not that recorded content, but what do you give the story that the user can tell about it? And uh, do you remember ringtones? Ringtones were worth like three or five bucks, whereas MP3s were perceived as zero. Why? One of them was a personal branding event. The other was just content. And so if you can sell that experience part of it, I think there's something to that. You know what I mean? That's why EDM's gotten so huge. You touched on a a very interesting Point. And this, this is the whole minnows, dolphins, and whales analogy that we've pulled from the gaming world into the music world. I think very few people realize where the opportunity is in the music space because of the lack of segmentations of your fans, truly understanding who the fans are and what those fans are willing to pay. If you look across, whether it's the NFL or 
the gaming business that Tim and I invest in, the video game business, the free-to-play model has won. And the free-to-play model really shows that the top 1% of your audience, the top 1%, these are the whales, account for nearly half the revenue. The bottom 50% of your audience, so the bottom 50% your minnows, account for less than 1% of your revenue. But you need an ecosystem between the dolphins, minnows, and whales to succeed. And very few people understand that or realize that in the music world because everything is a buck. Every song is a buck. Every ticket's 35 bucks. There's no differentiation. There's no segmentation among the artists. And I think that kind of stems from two things. One is the record labels are interested primarily in record sales. And the, you know, the live nations of the world are primarily focused on, on ticket sales. So kind of the big fish in, in this pond are, are focused on those two things. The only thing you really have is your manager who, who can kind of diversify the offering and, and figure out other experiential opportunities to, to monetize you as an artist. All right, so I'll take a little bit of break to make sure we're going down the right path here. So for the audience, any questions you want to ask these folks up here? Anybody have any ideas or questions? Right, there's a couple. Hi there. So I, I work with an artist, so I'm a manager. And you know how, the like... Brains. The brains. Maybe. <laughs> so just like on Facebook, for example, how it's been successful by selling advertising to the people who are using it, my sense is, I don't know if this has been tried, so my question for you is, has this been attempted, and if so, like, why hasn't it worked? At live shows, if you think about like, the possible gross revenue that you're going to get, depending on how many people have come, it's, there's a limit to it unless you're playing huge arenas. So, but you don't find a lot of businesses with, you know, set up on the side that are actually advertising at shows as a way to increase the gross by getting exposure to those 500 or 1,000 people who are going to be there. So is that something that's been done or could it be done the way there's advertising on these, all these websites we go to? Yeah, those, those rights are mostly held by the venues themselves. If they're the big arenas, all that advertising, they're buying it for the full season for all shows, so it's not, not controlled. But there's like sponsored tours, and then you, know, you cover your speaker with a Heineken can or something. But I haven't really seen a, a specialized live media business. I think there's going to be a very interesting business in the virtual live space where you know there's a lot of people who are going to see a live show but there's actually a lot of other people who you know can't drive there who are around the country or the world and providing them that experience and there's really interesting you know opportunity i think to connect in that in that way i think the mobile space is an interesting one to if your artist has a mobile app to integrate a brand into that so when they're at a live venue it can be a special offering or something and that's the integration between the brand and the audience and and that doesn't require you kind of an intermediary it's the direct audience I'd also suggest for advertisers to see if they could package experiences that are unique as opposed to just banners and display and all that stuff. So Toyota Presents, ask a question of Avicii or something like that. And yes, you could earn it by doing, you know, 10,000 viral invites or frankly, you could buy it for 10,000 bucks. You know, so I think to Haney's point, just the segmentation of this stuff could be so much better. The Vegas clubs have mastered this. You've got multiple levels of table service and, and different whale and dolphin packages yeah. and all of that sort of thing. So live events, tours, I think are probably the, I think to me are the most interesting area for monetization and the fact that we haven't figured it out yet. Be, beyond the meet and greet for 75 bucks, 
there are fans. If you've got a show that's got more than 100 people in it, there is somebody in that audience that's willing to pay $10,000 for some sort of experience. Yeah. And we've seen this over and over again. The $70 million that was raised on Kickstarter, people pay $10,000 for experiences. I mean, some crazy person is spending $10,000 to have a virtual dinner with XYZ over Skype. There are people out there, there are fans out there that are willing to give you a lot of money. And all you have to do is figure out what that experience is and how to ask for that experience. And there's platforms everywhere that are allowing you to do this. And so when you, th- when you say that there's limited opportunity to monetize around a live show, I, I, I disagree with that. I think there's a lot of opportunity to monetize around show. You have to be creative. You have to figure out what's working out there and replicate it. Yeah. I think it's important to be creative, but I think that if you have a bigger, bigger artist, they're not going to put an offering out for $10,000 to have dinner dinner with them, maybe if it's for charity or something like that, but they also don't want to kind of overexpose themselves. So, I think, though, one thing Haney touched upon, what I figured out on that, like why somebody wants to pay that 10000 bucks, they, they're buying a story they can tell to their friends. That's what it is. That story is invaluable because that's a lifetime memory. Dude, I talked to Avicii or whatever it is, you right. know, that kind of thing. Yes. So there's one example. I'll talk about one of our companies, a company called YY. I think I gave this example last year. So YY is a platform, kind of a video and chatting platform. And it started off actually for gamers to talk to each other while they're playing Counter-Strike. But now it's evolved to one of the biggest segments is music and primarily karaoke. Amateur artists singing songs to their audience of a few hundred thousands of people at a single time. And these are all live shows. So as an artist, people will throw you flowers, digital flowers. They buy these flowers in packs of 10 for 10 bucks, and then they throw them to you. As an artist, you make a third of the revenue they spend while they're on that site. So on a flower, you make 30 cents. If you're another fan and you don't like the song and you want to throw a tomato, you have to pay $10 for a single tomato, right? If you want to ask the artist a question, get in the queue for instant messaging, you have to pay money for that. You have to bid, actually. It's an auction system. You have to bid for that. When you walk into the room, you can just be silent and be on the bottom. If you want to walk into the room and have everybody notice you, you can buy a car. And they have everything from little Mazda Miatas to Ferraris. And each costs a different price. So if I'm driving by, you know, you see a car coming on the screen. It's like, oh, Haney's come by and he's bought that Ferrari for 100 bucks. There are artists literally making $50,000 a month. Amateur artists in China making $50,000 a month on these microtransactions. How many national artists can claim they can make that kind of money on a platform. So, yes, some of it is cultural to China, but I think, by and large, you have to think creatively about how you want to engage an audience, how you want to engage a, a fan base. So just one example of digital monetization. Tim, I know you're, you're big in the gamification space, so... I always believe that every fan or customer, you can make them buy something or earn something because you either have more time than money or mon- more money than time. And, you know, you talk about the ecosystem between whales and um, minnows. Free users are not worthless. Often they're there because their attention is what whales seek, right? So if without the free users, the whales have no one to show off to. They can't buy their status or anything. So always think about how do I make them buy something or earn something? If they're willing to do work for me, what could I use with that time? Just like... Street teams for, you know, artists back in the day, right? If street teams did enough work, they would get backstage access, that kind of thing. Those models exist digitally as well. As a company, we've incubated a company called Backplane with Google Ventures, and 
basically created a, a social network for Gaga, and now it's being used by you know countless brands and countless other artists. And just like you said, it the audience that's being created on that network is so powerful. It's free, but then can be monetized in very massive ways. We've even done crowdsourced merch and, and a countless number of kind of experiential events around that audience. So it's incredibly valuable. One of the most memorable experiences I've had at going to a... I go to about 30 to 50 shows a year. So I, I love live music. Um, one of the most memorable ones, it wasn't a top artist or anything like that. It was actually at the Fillmore. It was a local band. And I got to play soundcheck drums for a song with him. Coolest experience in my life. Second, they invited me up backstage with me and my friends, my six friends, to have a Budweiser with them backstage. That was a very, very... I was, the, I was a god emperor with my friends for about a week because of that experience. And again, it wasn't a, a top name, but it was just a great experience with me and my friends. And this is an experience I actually bought on Bandpage. It was an experience right there. It was like 50 bucks a person bringing backstage. What was the uh, band? Stone Fox. Oh, I like that. So great, great music, great band, great guys. Loved it. I would have paid 10 times that much easily. I'm, I am a whale. I am a concert whale. So target me for your you know, best stuff. And so these experiences need to get exposed. And one of the things that I think drives me nuts is the platforms, the big platforms, whether it's Pandora, Spotify, RDO, iHeart, all these platforms. It's the best engagement platform, but they're underutilized in terms of monetizing the fans. All they're doing is getting a monthly subscription, which is mice nuts to you guys, or it's advertising, again, mice nuts to you guys. So I think we as an industry have got to figure out how to take these platforms and allow these platforms to make more money for themselves and the musicians and artists. I mean, that's, that should be the goal, and any company that's a startup that's going after that, I think we would fund. All right. Everybody's going to do that now. Hey, there you go. So um, let's, let's, let's bring it back to startups for a second because there's this whole angel list, crowdfunding stuff that's happening that's really interesting. And it's allowing more and more companies get access to, to money to start and start a business. So I want to get everybody's thoughts on that. I'll start with you, Larry. Well, you know, from an, if you look at the ecosystem, there's something like... 50 to 70,000 angel deals done a year. So just people, you know, friends and family getting money, trying to start things. And if that's the seed, you know, very few of those actually sprout. It's actually the easiest money to get. And in some ways, it's actually getting easier. When you start getting into wanting more institutional money, there's something like 100 active VCs and if you think of how many general partners they each have, and let's just say it's an average of six, you know, there are 600 GPs who are able to do these deals. And then how many of them are actually in your industry? You know, how many VCs are like running around here? So there's something that's called the Series A crunch, which is when you try to get to your Series A, you realize there's not a lot of extra money. There, there's no place to get it. And you're trying to go back to your angels again. So I think we're all super happy about how much angel investing is going on because it's cheaper to start companies and it means there's more companies for us to ultimately fund. And uh, the big challenge then is oh, an angel list has democratized getting angel money even more where it just seems easier to do, but it's a very difficult asset class because the hit rate is very low. So... 
I think there's a lot of danger in those waters, and it's important, you know, if you're going to do angel investing, to do it in things that you, you know, you're very passionate about, where you're you're okay losing your money, or you feel like you can really, you know, be helpful, or you're super excited about it. Tim or Katerina? So I think over the last few days, AngelList has announced AngelList syndicates, which is you kind of have a lead angel investor. I think Jason Calacanis raised. in a few days. I think it's super interesting and kind of puts the VC uh, model on its head because the speed to market and and how fast you can raise money instantly with having that really key lead investor is really interesting. I don't think it applies to all types of companies, but in terms of, you know, an app that just wants a company that's an app and quickly wants to raise money, I think it's definitely an interesting model. I think overall it's a good thing for entrepreneurs because you have more avenues to start a company. But keep in mind, although it's cheaper to launch a company, it's more expensive than ever to scale a company. So once you're getting in that growth curve, then you're talking about these hundreds of millions of rounds for the Ubers and whatnot if it turns into a massive land grab, if you're going for the billion-dollar pie. That said, not every company needs to be a billion-dollar outcome. Not every company needs venture capital funding because we are – Well, we are like rocket fuel, but we're also the closest thing to screw your company up real fast if it's not designed to be a billion dollars because we'll push it off a cliff trying to get it to that because that's the way our business is structured. To move the needle on these big funds, you have to have these half a billion plus outcomes. Um, doesn't mean every company should be that. So just match your investors with the ambition and the scale that you want to take your company to. A lot of businesses, especially in music, are awesome lifestyle businesses, but should never touch venture capital funding because we will mess it up big time. So just always think about that impedance potential mismatch. Great advice. Darius? That was actually a really great round, but I'm going to take it back to the other side again. I like what you guys were talking about, about the ecosystem being more than just the big one-hit monetization on the whales and having a real ecosystem there. I also liked what you were saying about expanding the, 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 the music market as far as musicians go. Can you expand on that a little bit of, of what do you think the market is to actually make more musicians in the world? I actually don't think you need more musicians. I think you need more managers. You need more people like Katerina and her firm. You know, my experience in talking to artists is that they just don't know how to run a business model. And that's really, really hard. And oftentimes they get taken advantage of by, you know, labels, venues, tour managers, whatever. And that's, I think, one of the biggest impediments. Anybody else have a comment? Well, I think that music is really as important, you know, to kids as sports. I mean, you have... Your practice time, individual, you build your skill, you play with the band, right? You practice with your team, you uh, have your gig, you have your, your game. And schools, I think more and more schools are realizing they need to do it, but they're having funding issues, and that's coming out of, you know, parents' pocket. So I think there's actually a huge market in just more and better education and playing of music. I mean, music as an expense not music as a job. And that's, you know, selling gear, selling education. I think the education space is really going to be exciting. Right now it's, uh, you know, free guitar videos on YouTube. But that's not the easiest way to do it, and there's going to be a lot more there. But I think it's really going to be innovating to make people pay for music 
pay for experiences to allow more people to be professionals. But it's just such a pyramid, even if you tripled or 10x the number of people who are legitimately making money from music, it would still be a very paltry number versus you know, the people who actually think it's probably a good idea. I also wonder if you expand the market by letting people feel as if they're musicians. My favorite anecdote is Guitar Hero sold millions of units, not to get people to learn how to play guitar, but to get that little feeling of that they were like a rock guitar player. It's better than air guitar, so you sold a feeling. And so that's kind of an interesting one, because everyone would love to feel like a musician, but don't want to put in the, whatever, thousand hours to learn an instrument. That said, I'm finding in my own experience, what is a musician, quote-unquote, is changing too. I would argue that in the world of EDM has abstracted it so much that the curation of picking the right you know, patch in native instruments, massive, is a whole new form of musicianship. Learning Ableton Live, I've had to do all this stuff, and it's like starting from scratch. It has nothing to do with the mechanical art of playing a guitar, which I sank 5,000 hours into growing up, and is probably actually worthless now, but the you know, uh, ability to produce something where you can be the David Guetta and sprinkle your pixie dust on someone else and break them, that's entirely new skill set of what is a musician. You can outsource songwriting, you can outsource the playing, you can outsource the production. All of, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing how abstracted and digitalized it's getting. And I think YouTube has become an incredible platform for anyone. Um, I know that we recently signed an artist by the name of Lindsey Sterling who's got three million subscribers on YouTube, probably close to what Gaga has, that's really just, you know, grown on, on our own with no help of a management company prior to us. Um, so I think it's, musicians have all the tools right now. There's plenty of musicians. It's really how, how the top ones bubble up and who manages them. One of the interesting things, one of the analogies I like is like this, this whole music industry industry, the business of music, has been built up on the top 100. I mean, you had to scale an artist, get them popular enough that it would make sense from an economies of scale perspective to sell their albums and do tours and so on. So the whole industry has historically been built on these top 100 artists and how much money they can make. I think if we do this right as an industry, it'll look a lot more like the Apple App Store, where the cream rises to the top, whether it's organically or through, through business models. And what happens is there's a lot of turnover, a lot of discovery. Even if so it's, it's horrible app discovery, it's way better than the music app discovery that exists today. So I think if you think about the app store and the monetization models of the app store and how companies hit the charts on the app store, I think there's a whole set of stuff we can learn from an ecosystem as to how the app store operates and the velocity of the changes of the artists there that we can apply to the music industry. Now, it's going to be hard, I apologize for Lady Gaga, for Lady Gaga to sustain a number one album for years, but it'll be a lot easier for more of the independent artists, that mid-tier of the pyramid, to make a lot more money, in my opinion. Right, well, there's artists like Bauer who kind of climbed their way through you know, YouTube, and now Billboard's incorporating those counts on their charts, so that's definitely a good example of that. Audience questions? Hi. I actually work for a company called App Annie, and I was very curious about the last couple of things that you said. And I'd be curious to hear a little bit more because we, we obviously we track apps, and that's what we do for a living. And we see a lot with the freemium model and in-app purchases and how that relates to how people can monetize and make money. And I'm curious whether part of the problem or part of the solution is a better, tighter marriage between the music industry and not just the app industry but app developers 
so that they can kind of match some of the monetization models and, and then track them more into what a musical experience is or what a musical... So I'm kind of curious to hear more of what you think about that. So uh, everybody should mob this guy afterwards for insights as to how to you know, chart on the app stores and take those lessons to the music business. So the interesting thing that's happened is one of our companies, Bandpage, actually hired an exec from the game world, Doug, who I see in the back. And I think there's going to be a lot to learn from other markets, other media, digital media markets in the music industry. And some of the insights that App Annie provides to game companies, I think there are companies out there, whether it's Next Big Sound and, or others, that are creating business intelligence tools for the music industry. And I think as the business people come into this business and in this industry to figure out how to make money for you guys, I think you're going to see a lot more data analytics and a lot more insights being drawn from, these, from this data. One interesting twist on that, games and free apps did really well with cross-promo, right? Yeah. We don't even have that concept really in music. What if an artist had a huge fan base, but they could basically sell installs or cross-promo to others on a bidding AdSense-like model or something, you know? So right now that's probably not even something labels think about, but because uh, they want to promote house bands or whatever, right. but it's just one idea. This goes back a little bit to the challenge I was saying to the, to the rights holders, where if they're actually providing a statutory license that I have true visibility to develop on. There's incredible innovations that you can make. I mean, I think if you just step back and you look at you know, the quality of the software of any of the music services, you're like, you know, that's actually pretty crappy and thin. I mean, it, it's not really doing that much. I mean, yeah, it's great to have access to you know, a bajillion infinite number of songs, but the discovery isn't very good. There's nothing extra and interesting in there. The search is terrible. You know, the playlisting isn't good. So why isn't there tons more innovation going on? And it's because there isn't that key visibility. So I think if that was provided, statutory licensing for on-demand streaming, it would create a huge amount of innovation and energy, and you'd be seeing, you know, large number of demos that you'd be saying, I need that, I need that, I need that, I'd pay for that, I'd pay for that, I'd pay for that. Anytime I hear the word licensing, I start going, la, 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 la. <laughs> so you guys are awfully quiet. So either blowing your mind, you guys are thinking away, or we're boring you. So if somebody wants to turn the tide or give us a different direction, please raise your hand. I'm sorry, I, I came in a little bit late, so maybe you talked about this before, but I'm curious as to any opinions you have on the, quote, Jobs Act and the new kind of crowdfunding for accredited investors as a way for certain kinds of startups to raise money. What you're talking oh, about. you mean the Ponzi Scheme Act? Yes, I know. Uh, um, no, <laughs> we, we talked a little bit about that. I think there's, it's, it's actually great for, for companies. I am worried about the investor part of that equation. We talked a little bit about it. Does anybody else have anything to add? I think in Lost in Space, it was, you know, danger, Will Robinson, yeah. danger. You know, these are very early stage speculative companies. They don't have reporting infrastructure and there, there really isn't the level of oversight. So I think if you play it forward, you ultimately end up requiring that, which means there's going to be a lot of cost before you can actually go into that marketplace. It doesn't mean some great things can't come out of it. And it's always great to innovate on how you raise capital. But I think it's going to be, you know, 10 years from now, it'll be a pretty bloody story with you know really horrible overall hit rates and a lot of angry people do do any of you guys have questions that you want to ask the rest of us 
I'll change hats for a second. Tim, Katarina, Larry? Oh, international. This is probably a U.S.-focused discussion now. Maybe the rules are a bit different and dynamics are different overseas or... Why, why in China is an example? So there's a couple of places on the planet that I call Galapagos. China is one of them. You know, the majority, if not all, of musicians in, in China do not make any money on recorded music because of the piracy there. They all make a lot of money from appearances, live shows, experiences, TV, etc. So that's obviously one of, the, one of the lessons that we've learned bringing some of these business models back and forth. But, you know, the international rights are horrendous. If you look at Pandora, they're only in, primarily in the U.S. They've gone, I think, in Australia and Canada, some other places like that. But it's, it's tough. It, I think the music business is going to needs a lot of reform over the next few years, especially because of the international markets. Larry, do you? you know, I'm only investing in U.S.-based companies just because I, I don't like the time zone. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to be on the phone in the middle of the night or, or too early in the morning. I'm actually 22, but I, because of travel, I look like 44. <laughs> <laughs> I guess another question would be artist apps. If you guys think that artists should have their own apps, and why? Ah. I think all people should have at least 20,000 apps in their phone. But should, you, should you have your own app? Should you be no, an app? app so I, think, I think the top 10 can make their own apps. The very, very top artists. But I think in media, if you look at the human brain... There's usually like six or eight things that you consume. There's six or eight apps, six or eight magazines, six or eight TV channels, right, in spite of the fact that you have hundreds of those. And if you think about what's on your front page and how often you dig down to page three and four, you know, not that much. Bob? We have a question up front. So doesn't that counter the whole customer segmentation thing, though, if you're saying that there's 100 people in each... You didn't say this, but you're saying there's 100 people at every... If there's 100 people at a show, one of them is willing to pay $10,000. If you have your own app, you have to assume that, you know, a mid-level artist or even a top-level emerging artist has enough of a fan base to where if they had that app, he could segment his customers within that app and monetize those customers. I agree with you. <laughs> I'm on the same page. I think that when you have an artist app, you have access as a manager to data you don't normally have access to. And, and you know their geolocation, you know their email address, you know their age, their gender, all the stuff that you know you, you do not know from iTunes or, or at the Spotify's of the world. And so I think it's important from our perspective, to, to have apps, but it probably varies from consumer to consumer. So I, I, I would agree. Now, I'd also have you think about what do you want to do with that app? To Larry's point, for the top 100, most apps for artists have really been glorified websites, let's admit it, your content and some videos and songs and whatever. But if we talked about experience, what would Uber and an artist app look like? Book me for a thousand bucks right now, or you know, have dinner with me for five thousand. Could you do things like that? Maybe, uh, you know, you think of could you deliver experiences in there for an intimate group uh, of your power fans or something? It's maybe akin to would a, a local PTA have an app? What would they talk about in that? Right? It's almost like the hyper local thinking kind of level. It'd be kind of interesting if there's other business models than just news content and ads in that app. I think that if you look at at a brand, which right is represented by a great consumer experience that people will have on the front page, that takes a huge amount of energy, development energy, focus, investment to make something like that great. 
And whenever you white label that out, you're forking the code. Now you're supporting another one. Now you're supporting another one. Now you're supporting another one. When you're dealing with artists, they all want their own special look and feel, which requires deep customization. So I'd say, and they want to think we're the brand, but then the technology company says, well, actually, we're the brand. In this case, I think the technology company is the vessel to bring that set of different brands to the artist and is technically capable of developing that joyful experience for them. So I think very few numbers. I've downloaded the Miley Cyrus app and the Lady Gaga app, and I've downloaded tons of artist apps. Lady Gaga. (laughs) (laughs) Not yet. Or the bunch of these apps. I mean, I just deleted the Miley Cyrus app. Um, (laughs) No, none of that here now. Come on. And and it's very painful to have a bunch of these apps, and they do get old because that's not their business, delivering a joyful mobile experience, integrating incredible technologies, dealing with the issues. It is hard. So I have 26 music apps on my phone. None of them are artist apps. I think the one phrase that I use from a book is one app to rule them all. Um, I want to go to one place and just have my music experience there rather than have to go navigate 26 apps plus a bunch of artist apps that I like. One band that if they had their app, you would you would have that one app. So it de- it depends <laughs> what that if that app if if that app is the only way I could do one thing. Yes, if there's another app that allows me to do that one thing around twenty, I have I have twenty top ten bands. Okay, that blew just blew your mind right there, didn't I? So if there's one app that allows me to to capture those twenty bands and have that one thing come through, that would be way better than having a single. Do you remember all the websites that used to make you sign up for email addresses and you'd have to have a separate email for that website? That sucked ass. I like my Gmail. I don't want to have an Amazon mail, and I want to. You don't want to do that. You just want one place where you go to get your music or your artist experience. Should an artist have their own cable channel? This gentleman over here, he's been patiently waiting. You've kind of circled around it, but the idea of patronage, you know, kind of the Kickstarter model, pledge music, and not just the big whales, not just the $10,000 guys, but everybody, as we started the discussion, everybody's passionate about at least one band, if not a few. And so those people who maybe can't afford the 10000 but could afford 50 bucks or whatever, the challenge here is to connect people economically with those those bands that they're really not just bands the events the albums that they really care about and so i guess anything that you're seeing out there right now that you think's interesting around that and specifically the, the idea of how how do you think about funding or connecting economically because maybe it's not the band maybe it's the event or maybe it's the album if you think about like the movie funding business so Anything you're seeing out there, any thoughts on that? It's about properly creating and segmenting multi-tiers of products, services, and experience that match that different patronage level. I know exactly what to offer at the $10,000 level, $1,000 level, $100 level, $50, and $10 level. And there'll be scalability with each of those. If it's 10 bucks, maybe I can only produce basically an album. And if it's 50 bucks, I can sign those, but I can only sign so many. But you know what? You tie scarcity then to the economic value of it and then kind of be able to have a whole tier of offerings for that 
that. It could be a t-shirt, a limited edition t-shirt that is the right format, not the signed CD. It could be a page of lyrics handwritten by the artist, but there's only 20 of those. So it's about creating that wide range of new type of formats, which I think is really interesting. Check out a company called Teespring, which basically married, if you will, Cafe Press plus Kickstarter. You normally think t-shirt worth 10 bucks, but if the t-shirt is a token that I supported an artist for something, and now it could be worth 50 or 100 bucks, especially if it's limited edition, right? Like I said, everybody wants to be able to tell a story for what they got. Tim, Tim wrote a great article a while ago. I think it was like Seven Deadly Sins of Gaming Monetization or something like that. And to understand how to monetize an audience, you really have to think about like the psychology of the audience, the... The, the economic profiles of that audience, the merchandising to that audience. So think about that, right? Psychology, economics, and merchandising. How many management companies, artists, bands, know how to do that? For some of our gaming companies, there's literally economists on staff. There's psychologists on staff. There's people that do merchandising at the, the, you know, Target on staff. To really understand that model, you need a lot of experience and expertise to create these offers, you can't just do it willy-nilly. A lot of the bands that I've talked to that did Kickstarter projects broke even or lost money because they had no idea the ramifications of some of the offers they did. You know, signing, shipping, labels, all that stuff. That takes time, effort, and money. And so really, again, it goes back to the business knowledge and understanding how to run a business is probably the most important aspect of it. If anybody going to start a digital management company, let me know. Tamar. Just shifting gear to uh, music as content and music creation and composition, where do you see in your views sort of the next, next big technology? And I'm not talking about the SoundCloud and publishing, but the actual composition. Is it in gaming, wearable, social? Where do you see that? I'm a big believer that the future of music publishing will be in STEM tracks. So here's an interesting one. Check out Receive, Resicio, I think they're in France. They do Carafun online, subscription karaoke. Can they, you say that again? Resicio, R-E-C-I-S-I-O. <laughs> Fascinating company. They get professional musicians to create all the tracks. Then you can download them or stream them with custom mixes. But if you go to artists, I've had friends like Glitch Mob, Farty Smith, whatever, and we talk about why can't you release your track as a pack of stem tracks? People would pay 50 bucks for that because they get to remix it. They can't because the, the rights are tied up, yep. right? So the next-gen publishing company will figure out how to do stem track publishing so you can mix and match. Then imagine Spotify-like access to any stem, any track. The future musician and producer is someone who's grabbing stuff on demand, mixing it on the fly, putting it together. That's a whole new level of creativity. Dude, there's about 100 startups that are just raising their hands right now. <laughs> there's a lot. I, I, think, I think STEM's... About NCB, we're working with NCB on STEM track legal issues. It's a bitch. <laughs> it's a bitch, but we actually got through to it. So like in January, we're opening an indie contract with NCB, and from that, we're going to have STEM tracks as part of the NCB rollout, but it's going to be European, so that's going to be the first phase. But they actually went to it. They understood that we have collaboration units with 50 musicians doing STEM tracks and mixing that, and they knew that the current model that they work with is just ineffective and impossible to do. But it's interesting to see that these old giants kind of moved into it. I think production is also really interesting. Like, I have the new... Uh Mackie Mixer, the 1608 VLZ, where you use the iPad as a mixer and you set up a router. And the main thing when I use that, I just think, gosh, I just want to press a button 
and auto EQ the room, auto mix the thing that I could do all this stuff algorithmically and I don't even need to carry the mixer around the room probably. But there's just so much gear that's going to get replaced by, you know, effectively an iPad or a tablet and things are going to just start sounding a lot better. And, and um, I think people are also going to realize that subwoofers are really good things to have. And I never, <laughs> I never see subwoofers around, and particularly with EDM. And I want to give a shout-out to Darkstar Dan, who's doing sound. Very famous Grateful Dead DJ, too. I just want to say uh, thank you for continuing to uh, support large events and experiences. Because it's those experiences that people go home and they think of, what can I make? If this was possible, what, can, what sort of like adventure or thing can I make for other people? And to talk about the stems, I agree. I've done, I'm also a producer, and I've given away my stems to other people and done plenty of remix competitions where I've taken stems and done remixes. And reposting seems like it's something that is, is like continually just like kicking, kicking ass in the industry. And just, I just want to say, keep putting money into the live events. Questions? Uh, one in a corner. Run, run, run. So, um, I definitely agree with the whole idea of content going towards zero. I mean, I think the uh, value of that was um, you know, scarcity distribution. Now we can offer products directly to fans that works with the internet uh, and that you can go direct and you're still in, uh, offering these basically scarce products. I guess my question is, outside of gaming, outside of software, outside of that kind of freemium model, have you seen any other industry sort of disrupt their own, I guess, previously scalable product from the pre-internet era to then be profitable offering these different kinds of products? The NFL. Okay. <laughs> if you think about the NFL, half their audience doesn't pay ever pay. The other half pays, and it's scalable from a, you know, watching a game for 40 bucks to suites for $100,000 to onstage field passes. I mean, they've done a masterful job at figuring out who their audience is, segmenting the audience, and extracting the last dollar for that. And they've created apps and industries out of nothing. I mean, this, the, the fantasy football, the fantasy sports industry is a huge segment. Not only does it help increase awareness of the sport, but from an engagement perspective, it's incredible. Yet, the average American spends four hours a week watching sports. The average American spends 40 hours a week watching are listening to music, yet we're a sixth the size of the sports industry. So think about those numbers. Yes. Hi, uh, my name is Vincent. One question more on the marketing side. I know a lot of people have apps, great ideas, great music startups, but the problems come when, you know, even though you have a added value for the customer, it will be much easier if you have a celebrity or someone with uh, credibility to help push the product. Question being... How do you get these people on board? Um, because it's hard to offer them a lot when you're a startup uh, in terms of monetary terms, or do you give them stock options? How would you approach that? I guess I, I can take that one. There are very few celebrity investors that are worth connecting with, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> I will not name who they are. I'm sure most of you know. Just be careful. <laughs> My Twitter stream is lighting up, so everything we're saying is being uh, broadcast right. live. But I, I think you have to be careful, and you have to align yourself with a celebrity that, that makes sense with your company and has the same brand values and you know, can obviously spread, spread brand awareness and, and marketing message, but who's really, who really understands that space. There's one question here in the corner. 
So I had a quick question, less on consumer, more on the business. You talked about supporting managers and management and how we need more of that. What do you see as the number one problem area that needs some tools from the music tech community for that mm-hmm. space? Thoughts? I don't want to be the first one to speak on everything. No, so go ahead. I just ahead. did. <laughs> <laughs> I think there is a very broad array of tools needed you know, for managers because everybody needs to do what they're best at. And if you're going to be an artist and you're going to make you're going to make a great living from it. You want to have a great fan base. You want to have shows filled. You want to be promoted. And doing all that isn't, and dealing with all the technology isn't what you're really excited about. And I, I think the music industry will hopefully, you know, value the technology companies that are working hard to provide, you know, those platforms back as well. But I see um, filling shows as a very core thing, I mean, we just, if you want to go see a show tonight, first of all, what bands are really playing that you really like? And then who else is really going? How are you connecting uh, with people to go? Uh, Jukely did a demo earlier. I'm invested as a disclaimer. They're helping people get into shows, and there's so many unsold tickets out there. So what can you do to to get that filled, and that's a great management tool. Where as a manager are you going to go? Like Pandora has tremendous information around what people like different artists in different geographies and can help fill venues. So if, if it's going to increase the amount of shows we all go to, that's growing the pie, and that's always, that's always the best thing. So I see live as one really big area, and then I see innovating on all these things we're talking about and serving that up so it's easy because you want to market yourself multi-platform, not just in one place, but across many places. Data is really important. You mentioned segmentation, but as a manager, we have very few tools to really understand the audience and and the consumer. So any kind of really um, interesting data companies are always open, (laughs) you know, we're welcome to meet with because that's, there's a, there's a, really big divide between data analytics and the music space. There needs to be you know, more data visualization. Data needs to be interpreted in a way that we can understand we're not from, from that space. So that's interesting. I often tell manager, well, manager 2.0s, which are usually 20 and 30-somethings who grew up in the tech and social media generation, they should manage their artists like startups because that's actually what they are, artists as entrepreneur. If your artist was a company, what would you have? You would have marketing, community engagement, fundraising, all of these different dashboards and tools. I'm not saying you build it. You just have, you know which tools you use and you have the metrics, the KPIs, all of that stuff. You manage it like a business. Just like a game company knows exactly their ratio of registration, to monthly actives, to daily actives, engagement rates, conversion rates, etc. You would theoretically be able to segment your entire audience by whale, minnow, this, that, other, historical spent, this, that. You know, it, it should be as sophisticated as that. The truth of it is, it's not always that easy. Um, but one tip I got from uh, old school managers that the best bands work when there's one dictator as opposed to an equal partnership because then they just squabble and go off in different ways. So you get that dictator bought into that vision. They can kind of force the rest of the band members to follow. <laughs> All right. The boss just came in. So it looks like we're, we're done with time. No, it's okay. <laughs> well, I'll take one more question then. Go ahead. Hand in the back. Hi, how's it going? Jim Chowdhury. So you mentioned live, and I'm actually really curious about that. 
in terms of your future business model? Because, I mean, I'm fairly new to San Francisco, but as far as I know, it's kind of... Not as not, good as Austin. It, well, no, but I'm... A, a, well, I just came through LA, but essentially there is a, kind of like a duopoly, if you will. So there's like your Live Nation and your AEG, and you're another planet, of course. So what do you see in terms of innovation within that space since there is such a high, high barrier to entry and that traditional model has existed for forever? I mean, in the way that it's conducted in terms of, you know, from the office all the way to the venue, it's been kept in a certain way for so long. How do you see that breaking apart? What do you see the future of live looking like? That is a big knot. I'm not sure how to solve it. Anybody have any good ideas? Yeah. Sorry, I was just going to say anyone who can fill the empty seats... That's the future. Well, I was just at a, a SoFar event, and they put on shows in people's living rooms. One of the rules is you're not allowed to use your phone unless you're going to take a picture and put an Instagram or tweet about it. But there's a lot of desire for people to go to shows, but there's really it's it's hard to find you know a venue. I mean, if you book a if you book a show, it's hard to get people into the venue as a small band, but if there's less friction there, I think there's going to be a lot more live music because people will actually go into the venues. I think the very large bands with, you know, signed acts with huge audiences, they're inside of that duopoly that you're talking about. And those companies I think are going to be, you know, fight hard to remain in control of how those dollars are spent. But again, there's a lot of innovation going on around how to fill shows I think there's another major area, which is, you know, the virtual show, you know, tuning in to a show without actually being there. And there's some interesting stuff. Yeah, I I agree. Playing the old school system is really tough because it's a duopoly, but you can create new formats. Like Larry's talking about the the, um, living room one, back to the whale experience thing. There was a uh, friend I had who was a big time guitarist back in the day. He can't even get a record label deal these days, but he has a bunch of old farts like me who grew up worshiping his playing. He made more money on a dinner salon workshop thing, a thousand bucks a seat with a private catered dinner, then he would have tried to go play the film more, right? Because he would have given all that revenue to the club and this, that, and the other. So you can create new formats. Corporate gigs are always super profitable for bands as well. Go play Facebook. or You know, they, yeah. there's my band, we play charity gala events, make more money there than like trying to go play the film more. <laughs> one, way, one way to think about it is, is I'm listening to a song on Pandora, Spotify, or others, and I've liked that band six or seven times. On my eighth like... I get a pop-up saying, hey, pre-buy a show that's going to come sometime in February. So you pre-sell a show, collect the money up front, then go to the venues and say, hey, I want to rent your venue. That's one potential way to break that deadlock. I think a company called Songkick, which was integrated into Spotify, is a good example of what you're talking about, where based on your the music that you're listening to, you get sent concerts in your area based on the artists you're, you're streaming. If it worked. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. All right. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. And thank the panelists. They've been great.